When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week on Wealth Track, a rare interview with T. Rowe Price's David Giroux. He's a two-time winner of Morningstar's Allocation Fund Manager of the Year Award. How does he manage market risk? That's next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective. Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences. Rosalind P. Walter and the Fairholme Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. We are in for a rare treat this week. A two-time Morningstar Manager of the Year awardee is making his first appearance on WealthTrack at a time when he is in the midst of repositioning his mutual fund for more challenging times ahead. He is David Giroux, Portfolio Manager and Chairman of the Advisory Committee of T. Rowe Price Capital Appreciation Fund, which is a Morningstar Gold Medalist and carries a five-star rating. Drew was named Morningstar's Allocation and Alternatives Fund Manager of the Year in 2017, the second time he was so honored. The first was in 2012 for the inaugural Morningstar Allocation Fund Manager of the Year Award. Now, Morningstar cited Giroux's savvy allocation decisions and disciplined approach, which have paved the way to the fund's 9.2% annualized gains during his tenure, which began in 2006. That performance was 3.6 percentage points a year better than its typical category peer. But as you will discover in a moment, beating a benchmark or category is not what Giroux and his capital appreciation fund team are all about. Although it helps and is one of the reasons the fund had to close to new investors in 2014. The fund has three goals, generate strong risk-adjusted returns annually, preserve shareholder capital over the intermediate term, that's about three years, and generate equity-like returns with less risk than that of the overall market over a full market cycle, normally five years. So far during Drew's tenure, those goals have been achieved. I asked him to take us through the goals and how he's achieving them given current market conditions, starting with the meaning of risk-adjusted returns. We want a big spread, if you will, between that return that we generate relative to the market and the amount of risk we take. So like if you look at it over the last 10 years, the strategy's basically done a little bit more than 100% of the market's return in the last 10 years, but only taking about two-thirds of the market volatility. So we want a big spread between return capture and risk capture. And, and how, do you, how do you do that? I mean, how do you mitigate the, the risk that you're taking and, and, again, still get those strong returns? Well, we, we really like to find these idiosyncratic investment opportunities, whether it be fixed income or equities, where you have limited downside, the material upside for a variety of reasons, whether the stock's already been punished, the, the bond is already trading below par, 
things that allow you to have minimized downsize and, and have material upside. But in addition to that, we also try to look at factors that have historically produced, you know, very attractive risk risk returns like uh, low earnings volatility is a factor that we focus a lot in the portfolio. In, in, in addition, asset classes that we invest in like uh, high yield, uh, leveraged loans, we do cover call variety, all those have historically generated very attractive risk adjusted returns. Now, factor investing has become very popular. Yes. And so have you, have you noticed that the kinds of factors that you're talking about, these qualities of, of in investments that behave a certain way, um, are, are they getting, I don't know, you know, overplayed or now that more people are being drawn to them, is, is it harder to get the kind of returns that you would get from them historically? Or? You know, the factors that we tend to pay a little more attention to are probably not the mainstream factors per se. Like value, momentum, low volatility. Exactly. Okay. It's more earnings volatility is a factor we care a lot more about than sort of beta or momentum or you know, all those, those other metrics. Do you have an example that's in the portfolio today of, of a company that is basically generating those strong uh, sure. risk-adjusted returns? So, you know, one of the things we own is Pfizer. They do payment systems. Uh, they are also sort of the automation that basically runs the systems for a lot of sort of small and mid-sized banks as well. One of our top three or four holdings in the portfolio. This is a company that's grown earnings double digits for the last 32 consecutive years. So earnings are, you know, very unvolatile, if you will. So this is a company that, you know, has compounded wealth the last couple of years at a 12, 13% rate in earnings. Um, very low volatility around that. Business model is 90% reoccurring. Yeah, tra- has very strong free cash flow conversion relative to the market. Uh, so it trades at a small premium to the market on free cash flow, but basically gross earnings twice as fast as the market does over time with you know, almost no volatility in those earnings base. How do you find a company like that? I mean, what's the, what's the process to? We have, we have screens, but we also, at t we have over 200 analysts across the globe that are trying to look for these unique opportunities, and we're constantly interacting with that analyst pool. As well as, you know, we, at t Price, we have the opportunity to see, you know, literally hundreds of management teams every year come into our offices or go to conferences and see them. And, you just, and you're just really trying to find that needle in the haystack where the market doesn't fully appreciate how good this company is. Let me ask you about the, the second goal, which is to preserve shareholder capital over the intermediate term. Yes. And, and, and you, know, you put IE three years. And you told me um, over any three-year period for an investor in your fund that you want, you want them to get at, not lose money and at least get the same amount that they put in out after a three-year period. Yes, you know, the, is that, I mean, how realistic is that? We, we've done a lot of back tests on this. And essentially yeah. what has to happen is in a downturn, we have to be very conservatively positioned going into the downturn, which we typically are. Right. Um, then basically during that market downturn, when there's sort of blood in the streets, if you will, you know, we're going to get much more aggressively positioned and then basically ride that as, you know, in the first couple of years of the recovery. And so what you saw in sort of 2008, we massively have formed the market in 2008, then in 2009, we actually massively outperformed the market on the way up. So the combination of those factors, again, even though it was a really painful time for the market, right. the combination of 08 and 09 together, you know, we were sort of down very low single digits in that period of time where the market was down still you know, double digits in that period of time, that, that two-year cumulative impact of, that, of the great financial crisis. Right now, for instance, I know you told me over the phone, I think that you said that, the, uh, that there was a 100% chance of a recession in the next I think you said three to four years. So, you know, right now, w- would this be a time when you're getting, you're getting more defensive? Or 
I think we are in a very defensive position today because right. again, you got an economic expansion that's been nine years, you know, ten, nine year uh, recovery in the equity market. It's kind of long in the tooth. You know, look at all the different sort of financial models everybody has. Everybody else has their own recession model. Our recession model would say that the odds of a recession in the next three to four years are pretty close to 100%. So if you take that with a combination of being late in the cycle, valuations being high, something bad could happen, will probably likely happen in the next couple of years, it makes sense to be a little more conservatively positioned. And again, you know, 2009, 2011, we were very aggressively positioned. So we'll, we'll take what the market throws at us, if you will. The third goal is to generate equity-like returns with less risk than that of the overall market over a full market cycle, yes. which is normally five years. How do you identify a full market cycle? It usually has to have at least one downturn because we're not a, a strategy that has 100% equities. As we own right. equities, fixed income, leveraged loans. Uh, but essentially, what the, the, the challenge is you need at least one downturn. So when we think about that, that we sort of start the clock on January 1st, 2008, because 2008 was a very difficult year in the market. The stock market fell in 2008. The market, we still had a, a recession, obviously, in 2009. Right. 2009 was a very good year for the equity market. So 2008 was the first year of a downturn. So if you look at sort of 2008 to, to last, you know, end of last year, uh, that, that's been a, sort, of a, sort of a nine plus year right. cycle, if you will, uh, both in the economy as well as the stock market. And, and having said that, you know, I think we're probably in the later innings of that economic expansion. You can see that in the unemployment rate, non-residential construction, uh, auto sales, all would sort of say you're kind of in mid to late part of the economic cycle. What about the stock market cycle though? So where are we in the current stock market cycle? Well, if you think about the last uh, three market downturns, they all sort of uh, occurred concurrently with recessions, if you will. There's other reasons why you might have a downturn in the market, uh, you know, trade war per se. Uh, but, but essentially, I would say that if, you know, market downturns tend to be coincidental with recessions, if you will. One of the things that you've, you've written to clients recently is that there are fewer attractive risk-adjusted investments mm -hmm. um, across asset classes. It's a lot easier to find uh, great investment opportunities when valuations are, um, are, are lower than they are today. Sure. And it's not just valuations in equities, it's valuations in fixed income. You know, high yield spreads are much tighter than historical norms. Uh, leveraged loan uh, terms have gotten much worse over the last four or five years. So it's not just equities that are sort of expensive. Almost every asset class is somewhat expensive today. What's your What's your strategy? You're getting Are you, Are you getting more defensive now in your portfolio? Is, we, did you feel like that there's a, Is there a, an important inflection point in in how you're positioned in the portfolio, or just a gradual one? I, I would say we go where the opportunities are. Okay. So again, so if you think about that. You know, we didn't own any treasuries for the last four or five years. And, you know, treasury yields have risen to more attractive levels. And uh, so we've been adding treasuries. Uh, we were underweight utilities, you know, five or six months ago. And now we've actually added, you know, pretty material overweight to utilities. We sort of go where we see value in the marketplace. And usually where we're going to find value is not what the market thinks is value right at that time. And we've had a pretty consistent history of sort of, you know, going all in in stocks in 2009 when the market was sort of, you know, blood in the streets, if you will, and uh, 2011 as well. And now we, we pull back, we sort of, we do a little bit of a, a little bit of an intelligent contrarian, hopefully. What are your most contrarian views? I mean, so, I mean, you mentioned utilities, you yes. mentioned treasuries. 
Uh, so, and, and when you're talking about treasuries, you're talking about longer maturity treasuries. Yes. Like, what are you talking about, 10-year treasuries? We've been or? buying 10-year treasuries, right. yes. And so that's a very contrarian yes. position to take right it now. It is. But yeah. if you think about it, even if the Fed is right, even if the Fed says this the cycle lasts another couple of years, uh, they eventually get Fed funds to three, three and a quarter, you know, at the end of a cycle, uh, you, know, you typically find a flat yield curve. So if the, you know, if the front end's at 325, you know, the back end's probably not going to be much above 325, and you're already, you know, before today, you know, you know, 280, 290. Right. So, you know, you don't have a lot of downside risk. And again, nice thing with treasuries is, historically speaking, they're the one asset class that will generate positive returns in a downturn. Uh, so, again, if we look at it and say we, we don't have a lot of risk, to, we're not going to lose a lot of money by owning treasuries here. And, oh, by the way, if you had a downturn, you probably make double-digit returns that year. That helps offset some of the losses. Again, getting back to the idea of preserving capital at that three-year basis. So being a contrarian, you can be, the risk is you can be really early. Yes. Right? Yes. So has that been an, an issue um, in the, the fund? Or? You know, sometimes it, it does. Like in 2008, uh, when the, you know, October uh, of, of 2008, yeah, we were adding equities hand over fist. And obviously the market did not trough in October of, right. of, of, of 08. But the investment... Right. So in March of 09 is when it troughed, exactly, right? So exactly. in the meantime... So that, it, that definitely hurt us in the short term in 08 when we made those investments. Right. But obviously it really helped us pave the way for the really great 09 we had and also the 2010, 2011 as well. A very good return. So some of the best investments we made were those investments we made in 08 at ridiculously low prices. Same thing in 2011 when there was a, the market went down to 10 times earnings. In 2011, we were you know, aggressively buying equities. It probably hurt us in the August-September timeframe of, of 11, but really benefited us in, in 2012, 2013, some of those investments. So d does your strategy you know, kind of prevent you from getting into some of the momentum stocks, for instance? I mean, I'm thinking that, the, that, the, you know, that most portfolio managers who have kind of kept up with the S&P yes. 500, for instance, um, you know, have had to be in the fangs. I mean, yes. the fang stocks. So. We do. We do own Amazon. Amazon. You do. We, we bought Amazon a couple of years ago between probably prices between five hundred and six hundred dollars, and now it's you know it's fifteen hundred dollars plus today. Uh, again, when we bought Amazon, it was a situation where there was a lot of controversy, uncertainty, right? And the stock was going down every day. And again, we stepped up at that time and actually bought Amazon at a very good valuation. Again, you know, we are structurally underweight those stocks. They don't really necessarily fit with our mandate of capital preservation. Uh, there's not traditional valuation support with some of those names. So actually not owning those has been a little bit of a, uh, not owning is being overweight those, those names has been a little bit of hindrance to, to the equity performance. But we've been able to, able to overcome that in other, uh, other equities we own. Let me ask you about covered calls. Oh, sure. And that, and that, so, and that's a strategy that has worked successfully for you. Yes. There, if there's a company that we like that has a 2% dividend yield, and I, and I say, I know I'm going to want to sell this in a year if it was 10, 15% higher, I'll write a call on that name 10, 15% higher. I'll get an incremental, let's say, three, maybe even four points of incremental yield. That really skews the risk-adjusted returns. Because think about it, that stock were to go up 10%, I get the dividend yield, I get the first 10%. And then I get uh, you know, I get the, the incremental yields from the, the call premium. Right. So my my that I also now I get a fifteen percent return. And if I'm wrong and the stock goes down ten percent, I get the premium. I get the yield. I'm only down five percent. So it creates this really skewed risk-adjusted returns. 
And again, I already know that the stock were to go up 10% or more, I was going to sell it anyway. Uh, so it's been a very nice, uh, again, risk adjusted returns have been very, very good over a long period of time. And so is that something that you just do on a regular basis with most of the stocks that you can actually you know, not, it's not in your portfolio? With, or? It's actually not with most of these. Again, it's most of the stocks we don't believe there's some huge upside. So if you had a name where you thought there was massive upside, which we do have names in our portfolio we think could be up a lot, we're not going to truncate our winners in that, in that no. case. It's more of a company where, you, you know, consumer staple, a utility, a name where you have pretty good visibility uh, that it's unlikely the stock goes up dramatically or it's, or it's a takeout candidate per se. So those are the kind of names. Actually, the lower volatility covered call overriding actually tends to produce better risk adjusted returns than buying things that have lots of premium but have lots of... Um, uh, lots of upside and lots of downside. As you said, you, you can invest in all sorts of different asset classes. I mean, stocks, bonds, you can be overseas, you can be domestic. So uh, where are you finding kind of the, the best opportunities for strong risk-adjusted returns? I think the, the best risk-adjusted return today in the market is sort of utilities. Mm-hmm. You know, we own a number of high-quality utilities that are trading a discount to where they've historically traded uh, that we think can grow earnings 5 6 7% per year, Regardless of what the economy does, uh, have these companies have three, four, three, five dividend yields. That's almost a double-digit return, or very close to it. And again, the whole market is being dominated by secular risk. You have secular winners, you have secular losers. Secular winners trade for high multiples. Secular losers trade for very low multiples. Utilities is the one sort of secular winner that really is not trading for a high valuation, has very low downside risk. Again, they're on the right side of change. They actually benefit from renewables. They benefit from electronic vehicles. Uh, they benefit from taking coal plants out and putting wind farms in. All, that, that's all positive for customer bills. It's good for, uh, uh, it's good for, you know, for rate-based growth. It's really a positive thing. That's probably the area we see the most value in the marketplace today. So that's so interesting that they benefit from these changes to clean energy. Yes. And because, you know, I would have assumed that they wouldn't, that they've got to make the transition. That's got to be expensive. Well, what, what you're seeing is wind prices have come down so much uh, with the turbines as well as the, the capture rate mm-hmm. has come down. So the same thing with solar. So it used to be solar and, renew- and renewables were so much more expensive. Right. Uh, but today, I mean, you have, you're seeing utilities close down or curtail coal plants, put in wind plants or put in wind turbines, if you will, or solar. And actually, it's a net positive for the consumer. It's a net positive for their rate-based growth. It's a net positive for earnings growth. So actually, solar and wind energy are, are competitive with coal? Yes, yes. Now, coal? now, with tax credits today. Okay, with tax credits. With tax so credits today. Right. But, but in areas where you have a lot of wind, yeah. uh, it's, actually very, very com- it's actually very, very competitive today. When you and I had talked earlier, you had mentioned that you're looking for you know, companies with um, kind of with, you know, lower volatility, I think. Yes, yes. And, uh, and, you know, companies that kind of no matter what happens in the economy, that they're going to just keep delivering results. So, so, so are, are these, the, I mean, in healthcare, consumer staples? Healthcare is probably our largest overweight in the portfolio today. You know, Becton Dickinson, per, per se, is one of our larger holdings as well. So, and, and Becton Abbott, D- Dickinson is a, um, is a manufacturer of what? They make just about Medical everything. And, yeah, think, about, think, about, and, think about syringes, right. flow cytometry, sort of life science tools. They're in the middle of buying BARD, or they just bought BARD, uh, which actually should enhance their organic growth rate. But again, a very steady, 
business, and it's all a question of whether they grow at four and a half, five, or five and a half, but a very steady eddy business. You know, Marshall McLennan, you said, was one of yes. the, your holdings, and Danaher, so explain. Well, Marsh, Mac, Marsh McLennan is a great example. It's, uh -huh. it's an example of everything we're looking for. You have a great CEO in Dan Glaze, just a great CEO, uh, inspiring gentleman, but a company that every year puts up three, four percent organic growth, improves margins a little bit, buys back some stock, makes really smart acquisitions. Most companies make bad acquisitions. Marshmack makes really good acquisitions. Mm -hmm. Pays a very healthy dividend. It can basically compound wealth at a 10% rate on earnings, you know, you know, almost a 2% dividend yield, and you have a long duration to that growth. And again, trades at a small premium to the market, but again, you know, one and a half times the growth rate of the market uh, with maybe half the earnings volatility of the market, or, or, or even less. Danner's the same, uh, same story where, you know, very good management team, very good capital deployment, double-digit growth, not a lot of earnings volatility. In a downturn, Danner's earnings will probably be down five. Marsh McClendon's earnings will be down five. Last three downturns, the market's been down, you know, 16, 20, and 30, if you will, last three downturns. So these earnings volatility of these companies is so much lower than that of uh, the market, per se. They, don't, they, don't, they should trade for a much, structurally, much higher multiple than they do. Will they ever? I mean, these are not sexy names, right? But they're, as you said, the steady eddies, they just don't garner this sort of attention. I think over time, the market, again, the market is inefficient in the short term. The market is very, very efficient in the long term. So I, I, would, I would argue that over time, the Danaher's, the Marsh McLennan's, should, you know, even utilities should trade for much higher multiples than they do today. We had a discussion earlier uh, with someone about the fact that the skill set on Wall Street is, is increased uh, you know, tremendously. And it's, it's just because of the capability of gathering data and, you know, having computers analyze all sorts of discrepancies in the markets and everything else. I mean, are, are you finding the kinds of names that, that you would have, you know, purchased, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, which would have, would have been under everybody's radar screen? Are, are you finding more competition for those names and more recognition or? No, no, no. because a lot, a lot of what happens today in that, that data science part of the world is trying to figure out short-term movements and short-term what's going to happen in earnings. What, what, how, many people, how many cars are in the Home Depot parking lot? What right, does that mean right. for comps? Yeah, that's not the game we're playing. That's not the game we will ever beat the hedge funds at. We are looking for companies that we think can compound wealth at a much faster than the market with lower volatility that trade for too low of a premium or, too, or maybe even a discount to the market over time. That's sort of what the game we're playing, and that's not the game that the data scientists or the hedge funds are playing. So again, a lot of things we, we own, people look at them and they say they're boring. Yeah. Most things we own are not going to be up 50 or 60% in one year, but they're also not going to be down 50 or 60% mm -hmm. in one year. Every year, they just compound a little bit faster in the market, and every year we outperform just a little bit. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio that we should all own some of, what would you say that would be? I would say if you have a 10-year view, I would own utilities as an asset, or sort of as a sector. 10-year view? 10-year view. I, actually, I think the secular view of Utilities only gets better over time as battery storage gets better. Uh, I think it, it, you know, EVs become a bigger part of sort of the car park, if you will. I think the, the longer term story for utilities is very, very positive. So, I, you, know, and, and, you know, you can look at the names we own in the fund as our, you know, whether it be. Um, Such as? You know, we, we own um, Eversource, we own DTE, um, some other names we're buying, so I'd, I'd probably prefer not right. to, to mention them right now. Uh, or you could just buy the XLU, which is the State Street uh, 
sector ETF, which will also mm -hmm. give you exposure to utilities. But I just think, you know, the ability to have five, six percent kind of EPS growth be on the right side of secular change, you know, very attractive dividend yields. Again, everybody's so concerned about rates right now. But you know, the, the longer term concern is not about rates rising. The longer term concern is more about di disinflation or deflation than inflation. There's so many secular forces that are going to long term push uh, inflation lower, not higher. And again, I think that's why we're trying to think a little bit more long term as opposed to the market a little bit more more short term. So, so that's interesting that uh, and and, and the, the the secular trends that you're talking mm -hmm. about that are going to result in lower prices. I don't know are things like robotics, robotics and robotics, automation, automation. Yeah, yeah. I, I go through every conference call, transcript with every company I own, and probably another ten companies we don't own every every quarter. And it's amazing to me how many companies are talking about replacing call center workers with sort of automated robots, they call them robots, mm -hmm. you know, replacing the, the people at McDonald's uh, who are taking your order with kiosks. Mm -hmm. uh, you just see more and more automation uh, going place, you know, replacing uh, equipment in the back of uh, restaurants that is labor intensive with less labor intensive stuff. Uh, so I think there's a long, long term trend towards lower inflation, not higher inflation. David Giroux, this was such a treat to have you on Wealth Tracks. I've enjoyed Thanks. it. Thanks very much for being with us. All right, thank you. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is start to build some more defensive positions in your portfolios. David Giroux has been adding some utilities and other non-cyclical, less economically sensitive stocks to the equity portion of his portfolios and longer-term treasury securities to the fixed income portion. He is not alone. Several portfolio managers with excellent long-term track records have appeared on WealthTrack in recent months, expressing their concerns about the sustainability of the nine-year bull market and how expensive financial assets are. If you haven't already done so, it's time to make your portfolios less susceptible to market corrections. Well, next week in another rare interview, we will discuss high-quality global growth opportunities with Harding Lovner's Simon Hallett. And this week in WealthTrack's extra feature, we will find out what led David Giroux from Hillsdale College, a small traditional liberal arts school in Michigan, to his big-time investment position at T. Rowe Price. In the meantime, please share your thoughts with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for watching. Have a happy Easter and Passover weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.